Hello and welcome to another episode of Urban Legends and Mythologies. And I'm actually in a really good mood today. For the first time in a very long time, I found some original BrewDog Punk IPA from right here in Canal Winchester, Ohio. That's where the brewery is. I'm actually a few miles south of that. But it's been a long time since I've found original old school BrewDog and I'm really excited to have it. And on that note, it's a really nice day out, and I've realized that I've spent the last few or several episodes talking about some crazy dark subjects, and I felt that it was time for a more lighthearted subject. So on this episode, we're actually going to shift from crazy Cold War shenanigans and the occult and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I'm actually going to discuss one of my favorite sports myths out there, notably the infamous Curse of the Bambino. This was a huge myth that, you know, for the first 18 years of my life, I had heard about, you know, it was broken in 2004. So after that, you know, it kind of falls off the radar. But you know, I kind of wanted to discuss that as opposed to all the creepy, crazy stuff that I usually talk about. So let's have fun with this one. We're going to do it. I'm probably going to talk about some other early sports history and stuff. I really love early sports history, like anything up until about the 1970s, 1980s. That stuff really fascinates me, especially early baseball history. And this is early baseball history and some really good early baseball history. And I really want to get into it today. So like always, let's start at the beginning. What is this infamous or what was this infamous curse of the Bambino? So to understand this, we really have to go back to early baseball. And we're going to start in 1903. That's the first time where we ever see the infamous World Series take place. So in 1903, you had the American League and you had the National League. These are two different professional baseball leagues. And each one of these had their own championship. And the champions from those leagues faced off in each up, faced off with each other in like a best of nine series. So if you win five out of nine, you win and you're the World Series champion. That's the basic gist of it. Like that's me putting it as simply as possible. So in this series of games, the American League champion at the time were the Boston Americans, later known as the Boston Red Sox. And they would go off against the National League champions, the Pittsburgh Pirates, in a best-of-nine series with Boston winning five games to three. Wait, how does that math make sense? Oh, wait, that's right. It's a best-of-nine, so once they won that fifth game, they didn't really have to bother with playing that last game. Never mind. Anyways. That's the gist of it, and Boston, they would go on to be like the big dog team at the time. They would win several of these World Series up until 1918 when this curse comes around. Actually, they won five of the first 15 of these World Series, which is, in baseball, that's a really big deal. Think of how many professional baseball teams they have out there, and then... They have to win, and 
go on to ultimately get into the World Series and then go on to win it. So uh, you can argue at the time that, yeah, there were fewer teams back then, so naturally a team like them is going to prevail or whatever, but it's still a very hard feat. And, in fact, they win the 1915 championship, the 1916 championship, and the 1918 championship. Now, what's important about this is those three years, this, the great Bambino, also known as Babe Ruth, you might have heard of him, was a member of the Boston Red Sox. And at the time, he's largely considered one of the great baseball players of his era. I mean, he's right up there with, like, Hornus Wagner and Cy Young. Now, during this period, Ruth was contributor to the Red Sox's three World Series championships. Um, a lot of sources say 1915, 16, and 18. However, in 1915, the coach didn't really use him as a pitcher. He was only put in for like one play as a pinch hitter. However, he did pitch for the 1916 and 1918 World Series the Red Sox won that series so at this point Ruth is being seen as a very valuable player and a lot of other baseball teams want to basically buy his contract they want to you know they want him to play for them which is what happens in 1920 and 1920 the New York Yankees who you know they're Boston Red Sox's biggest rivalry. It's one of the oldest and biggest rivalries in baseball history. Uh, they actually, you know, the owners get together and the owner actually sells Babe Ruth to the, you know, New York Yankees. And the New York Yankees at the time, like now they're like the big team. They're the rich millionaire team that everybody hates because they can afford to buy just about any great player and dominate anything. But up until 1920, they were a very lackluster team. They had not even won a single World Series. And, you know, in baseball, winning the World Series is a big deal. It's like those are your star players. Um, it's like how today... You know, baseball is not really popular today. We still have the World Series, but think of it in um, think of it in football terms. You know, the World Series is the Super Bowl. You know, at the time, you know, baseball was the number one sport in America. And I'm just gonna go off on a tangent about early sports in America in the early 1900s, real quick, because it's something that a lot of people today don't really understand, but. They really need to understand it. So let's go off onto a real-life historical thing. So if you look at the big three sports in America today, what are they? Most people will say football, followed by basketball, and trailing behind baseball. Well, it wasn't like that um, during this era in the early 20th century, hell, up until maybe the 1960s. Back then, the big sports were baseball by far and then football and then basketball trailing behind and the reason for this is kind of actually simple baseball is organized earlier and it's more of a game that's very well structured 
and it's very easy for the general populace to learn and the general populace kind of latches onto it first now while ba- now while football has its origins i mean hell football has its origins in rugby and the football games in europe but let's stick with america football's early origins really show up on college campuses and that's kind of the reason why football takes a little longer to catch on in america because in early football you know it was usually like yale versus harvard or you know these really nice upscale college campuses and the general public's just not going to really have access to that it's really seen more as a game for college kids and when you're speaking of a time when most people probably had maybe a sixth grade education hell even up to world war ii that's why everything's put so simply like the military because it's based on this world war ii idea that most people have like a sixth grade education you know a lot of men especially weren't expected to even go to high school or finish high school now they do if they want to be in certain professions or go to college but the average working class man he probably has like a sixth grade education he's not really exposed to football that's being played on college campuses if he is it's because he has a cousin or a friend or somebody who has been to college and has seen a game that being said it wasn't unheard of like you know football does show up in high schools and stuff later but it's more slow to adapt so at the time baseball is the big sport of the time that and i guess you can argue boxing and horse racing too but like baseball think of baseball back then that was how we think of football today that's just a little tangent i just wanted to kind of clear that up because a lot of people seem to be confused about that but yeah at the time like Baseball was the number one sport in America, and that's why it gets to be called the American pastime. So, with that little digression out of the way, let's get back to the topic at hand. So, it's 1920, and the owner of the Boston Red Sox is a man named Harry Frazee. And he owns a team, and he's also like this guy who funds productions of Broadway shows and stuff. And so he's always looking for money to fund these Broadway shows. So the Yankees approach him and they want to basically purchase Babe Ruth's contract. They want him as their, you know, pitcher, as their, you know, big shot, their big star. So he sells them, Babe Ruth, probably for a nice price. And it starts off, it kicks off this drought. That's, that's the curse lore. Now, to be honest, the drought probably started in 1919 because, you know, they didn't go to the series in 1919. However, it kicks off this 86-year-long drought where the Red Sox do not win a single World Series. Now, some fans really took this curse seriously. They said, you sold the star player therefore our team is now losing now and you know how is this happening um you gotta remember in sports especially sports fans we're really superstitious about a few things you know if you're drinking a beer and your team scores a touchdown i'm going back to football again you're gonna think 
oh, I, I took a sip of that beer. Maybe if I take a sip of that beer again, they'll get the two-point conversion or the field goal or whatever. And Well, you know, a lot of sports fans are like that. And um, while some take it seriously, most use it as like a tongue-in-cheek kind of joke. You know, hey, the Red Sox, they sold their star player back in 1920, and they haven't won a single World Series in 86 years. However, after selling Ruth, the Boston Red Sox began to decline as a team while the New York Yankees start to become the dominant team in American baseball. And we have to realize there's this natural sports rivalry between the two teams, so it's just going to get exacerbated. And, you know, they alluded to this curse. However, we also have to remember that... um, the New York Yankees, they're kind of known for like poaching star players because even after this sale of Babe Ruth, other people from this 1916-1918 team from the Red Sox come over to the Yankees to work for them and the owner of that team. For example, in 1921, their manager, their team manager at the time, Ed Burrow, He actually leaves the Red Sox to become the general manager of the Yankees. And other players from this star team were leaving to go join the Yankees too. They were either sold or traded or you know how players get traded all over various leagues. So when you look at it that way, you got this team and they're poaching your best guys and your team manager and blah, blah, blah. So naturally your team's going to decline in the short run however um it does allude to this curse and it does give fuel to this rivalry i mean that's kind of why historically we've always hated the new york yankees because they're notorious for this they got a lot of money they can afford the you know to offer a better contract get a better player but i'm kind of going in circles Of course, it wasn't really until 1990 when we hear the term The Curse of the Bambino, and that's actually a title of a 1990 book that discusses this sale and the decline in the Red Sox for the next 86 years and the rise of the New York Yankees who go on to play and win more than twice as many MLB World Series titles than any other uh, baseball team in Major League Baseball. So, in 1990, this book comes out, and The Curse of the Bambino hits the lexicon, and, you know, for a lot of people who, like, grew up in the 90s, like me, in 1990, I was five years old, you know, you learn about it, it becomes, like, this cultural phenomenon, and, you know, you always say, well, you know, um, there's just this rivalry, and it's this curse, and blah, 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 and that's the gist of it, you know, the Red Sox sell Babe Ruth to the Yankees and you know they get this curse and they'll never go on to win a World Series hell like up until the time they actually did in 2004 win that World Series and that was a big win because they were behind then we thought it would never happen I thought I'd never see them win the World Series in my lifetime but anyway like it really leeches the lexicon and then when you look at like the history of like the World Series, you see all these times where um, it happens a lot with like urban legends and folklore and stuff. Um, 
the urban legend hits the mainstream and then you go back and you find all these little clues that kind of confirms the urban legend or the curse and it's kind of fun if you really look at the history so we'll just throw out one historical tidbit in the years after the Babe Ruth and these other guys left the Red Sox to go play for the Yankees the Yankees up until 1920 the Yankees had not played in a single World Series they were a very they were kind of a joke team they played in 39 World Series, winning 20 sits of them during those 84 years. Meanwhile, over that same time span, the Red Sox had only played in four World Series and lost each of them in seven games. So that really, if you're a superstitious person in the sports world, that really alludes to, hey, this is a cursed team. What's going on here? And even losses that occurred many years before the first mention of this supposed curse, it's kind of first mentioned in 86, which is actually the year I was born, so that's pretty cool, uh, have attributed to like some of these instances below. So these are games and results of games that happened that on the back end after this curse kind of hits the mainstream is attributed to the curse. So... One example, in 1946, the Red Sox appeared in their first World Series since the sale of Babe Ruth, way back in 1920. They were favored to beat the Cardinals. That's the St. Louis Cardinals. The series went to a seventh game at Sportsman's Park in St. Louis, and in the bottom of the eighth inning, the score was tied at 3-3. And at this point in the game, a historic play would go down known as Slaughter's Mad Dash. And it actually has a Wikipedia page uh, dedicated to it because it's a really awesome play. And a really controversial play if you are a Red Sox fan. So for context, at the top of the 8th, Dom DiMaggio, he was a center fielder for the Red Sox, he drove in two runs which tied up the score. However, DiMaggio, and this is Dom DiMaggio, he pulls a hamstring during the play and he's forced to leave the game. He's replaced by a pinch runner known as Leon Culbertson, who also replaced him in center field in the bottom of the inning. So, Cardinal right fielder Enos Slaughter's up to bat. He leads off with a single. After a failed bunt attempt by Whitey Krowski and a fly out to left field by Del Rice, Slaughter found himself still on first base with two outs. Left fielder Harry Walker steps onto the plate, and after count reached two balls and one strike, Cardinals manager Eddie Dyer called for a hit and run. So for those who may not know anything about baseball, a hit and run is a very high risk offensive strategy, but it does have a very high reward. It uses a stolen base attempt to try to place the defending infielders out of position for an attempted base hit. So this is where we're at in the game. They're gonna go with this high risk play. So with Slaughter running, Walker lines the ball to center left field where Culbertson fielded the ball. As he throws a relay to the shortstop, Johnny Pesky, Slaughter rounds third base, ignoring third base coach Mike Gonzalez's stop sign, and he just makes a mad dash for home. Now, what exactly happened at this point is still a matter of contention to this day. Pesky turned around in a matter of contention. Some claim that Pesky, assuming Slaughter would not be running home, checked Walker at first base instead of immediately firing home while others contended that Pesky was so shocked to see Slaughter on his way to score that he had a mental lapse that accounted for the delay. 
Either way you put it, a lot of people will say that Penske hesitated. However, Penske alluded for the rest of his life that he did not hesitate on that play. Anyway, Slaughter runs home. Cardinals win that game. Thus giving more weight to this so-called curse of the Bambino. Some more instances that allege and give more weight to this so-called curse of the Bambino was in 1948. The Red Sox, they finished their regular season and tied for first place. However, they lost the pennant to the Cleveland Indians. And yes, I grew up with it being the Cleveland Indians. To me, it's still the Cleveland Indians today. Personally, I think Cleveland Guardians is a stupid name and it should be changed. But I digress. So, they go on to face the Cleveland Indians in the Major League's first ever one-game playoff. And they lose. So, Cleveland would go on to the World Series. Another curse strikes again scenario now one year later in 1949 the red sox needed to win just one of the last two games in the season to win the pennant they're getting there they're close but lost both games to the yankees who won their record five consecutive world series from 1949 to 1953 this starts a five-year streak for the yankees winning the world series which like i said it's why a lot of people hate the yankees I know, I kind of get it. So then again, we jump ahead to 1967. In 1967, now in 1966, they had an embarrassing, embarrassingly bad season. So in 1967, they win the American League pennant on the last weekend of the season. In the World Series, they once again face the Cardinals, just like they did in 1946. The series went to a seventh game, just like in 1946. St. Louis won the deciding contest 7-2 behind their best pitcher, Bob Gibson. He defeated Boston ace Jim Longberg, who was pitching on short rest and was ineffective. Gibson even hit a home run against Longberg in the game. Curse striking again. And we'll even jump ahead to the year I was born, 1986 World Series against the New York Mets. Boston leading the series three games to two, took a 5-3 lead in the top of the 10th inning. Red Sox reliever Calvin Girardi retired the first two batters, putting the team within one out and shortly within one strike of winning the World Series. They're getting there. They're close. They've almost got it. However, the Mets scored three runs, tying the game on a wild pitch from Bob Stanley and winning it when Boston's first baseman, Bill Buckner, allowed a ground ball hit by the Mets to roll through his legs, scoring Ray Knight from second base. In the seventh game, the Red Sox took an early 3-0 lead, only to lose 8-5. <sighs> Man, even at the time the New York Times wrote, this team is cursed. And also in... 2003, the year before the infamous curse was broken, the Red Sox were playing the Yankees in Game 7 of the American League Championship Series. Boston held a 5-2 lead in the 8th inning, and manager Grady Little opted to stay with starting pitcher Pedro Martinez rather than to go to the bullpen. So New York rallies against the tired Martinez, scoring three runs, on a single and three doubles to tie the game. So they got the game tied. 
In the bottom of the 11th inning, Aaron Boone launches a solo home run against Boston starter Tim Wakefield, pitching in relief to win the game and the pennant for the Yankees once again, giving more weight to this curse. And I bet those Boston fans are thinking, not again. It will never win it in our lifetime, you know. Now, throughout this whole time, this whole 80-plus years of this curse, and even throughout most of my early lifetime, you would always hear it whenever the subject of baseball would come up. Well, the Red Sox are a cursed team. They're ineffective, you know. Every time they go up against somebody, they're, you know, there's always they're always just out of sight of either making it to the World Series or ever winning the World Series. So it led to a lot of hardcore fans of the team to attempt to break the curse and it they come up with all these crazy methods of attempting to break this curse um one method was a hardcore diehard fan he was climbing mount everest and when they reached that initial base camp on mount everest they burned a yankees baseball cap and then they get to the top of mount everest and they leave a Boston cap on top um in 1976, Lori Cabot, the quote official witch of Massachusetts, was brought in to end a 10-game losing streak. While the losing streak did end, the curse did not. Even in 1994, there was this Ken Burns documentary. It was literally called Baseball. And former Red Sox pitcher Bill Lee suggested that the Red Sox, I guess he's suggesting this in a tongue-in-cheek manner, that they should exhume the body of Babe Ruth and transport it back to Fenway and publicly apologize for trading Ruth to the Yankees in an attempt to break this curse. However, salvation, or whatever you would call it, would finally come to the Red Sox in 2004. So in 2004, the Sox once again meets their old rivals in the American League Championship Series. The Sox loses the first three games, including losing game three at Fenway by 19 to eight. So the Red Sox trailed four to three in the bottom of the ninth inning of game four. But the team goes on to tie the game with a walk by Kevin Miller, a stolen base by pitch runner Dave Roberts, followed by an RBI against Yankee closer Marino Riviera by third baseman Bill Muller. Muller and one on a two-run home run in the 12th inning hit by David Ortiz. The Red Sox goes on to win the Nets three games and becomes the first and only Major League Baseball team to win a seventh game postseason series after losing the first three games. And wait, it gets better. So the Red Sox then faces off the St. Louis Cardinals, the team who they had lost to in 1946 and in 1967, and led throughout the series, winning a four-game sweep. Cardinals shortstop Edward Rentiera, who wore the same number as Ruth, that's number three, was the final out of the series, and it said at that time, during that final out, that's when that curse was finally broken. So what can we say is the legacy of this so-called curse of the Bambino? Well, even like the most casual fans out there if you if you know anything about baseball you always hear well Babe Ruth was the great one he was one of the greatest players that ever played the game you know at least up until his record started getting beaten you know in the later half of the 20th century 
But it's really kind of a fun way to uh, kind of reinforce those famous sports rivalries. And it's always fun to kind of recount what happened in the history of baseball up into that point between 1920 and 2004. And it's kind of cool when you dig into some of that history because, you know, it really reinvigorates a love for the game and... I think without these superstitions that come up, I mean, it's not just baseball that has these superstitions and curses. They're they're in every sport. If you go through the history of every sport, you'll find them. And it, like I said, it really reinforces that love of the game. And at the end of the day, it's just good entertainment. And speaking of good entertainment, I do want to thank anybody out there who is listening to this show. I know this episode was kind of a hard left turn from kind of the crazy myths and nonsense and ghost stories and stuff that we normally do. However, every once in a while, I do like to throw some other interests into the mix. Uh, Like I said, early sports history in America, that's a really fascinating subject. And You know, even in that, there are urban legends and conspiracies, and I might touch on some of those in future episodes. And it does create a good break from that Cold War craziness and stuff like war and ghosts and death and all that crazy stuff. You dig into that for a while doing the research, because to be honest, even though I'm sitting here half drunk, sipping on a delicious brew dog, talking talking craziness into a microphone and then barely editing it it does take hours upon hours to research this stuff and when you're sitting there reading through hours and hours of stuff that's on some pretty dark and depressing stuff that starts to wear on your mental state so it's fun to kind of have a break from that and I hope you too enjoyed that break from that and maybe if anything learned a little bit about American baseball I mean I just really glossed over a lot of stuff. Uh, There are a lot of great baseball podcasts out there if you're interested in the sport or any sport. Um, I believe there are some history of American sports podcasts out there. I'm sure there are where they discuss old games from the 30s and all that stuff. I'm sure that stuff's amazing because, you know, you can really see how the games evolved throughout human history. But on that note, I will end it here. Like I said, I do thank you all for listening, and I hope to see you in the next episode. And as always, if you are a fan and you like what I do, spread the message, spread the word, spam your friends' inboxes with it. You know, this show grows by mostly word of mouth. Uh, I know I'm kind of hard to get a hold of for feedback purposes. I'm still trying to figure that out, but... If you can get a hold of me for feedback purposes, you know, I'd greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you, and I'll see you in the next episode.